The sermon text reading is from Psalms 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me from the pit of destruction out of the merry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of people, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the good, glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond numbers. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. For For as for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, my, oh my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, many of you know that back in March, I applied for a grant for my sabbatical. And, and they told me when I applied that by the end of August, they would let me know uh, acceptance or rejection. Now, what I didn't know was they literally meant the very end of August. I, it is two days left in the calendar for August, and I'm still waiting. And, and so I'm like, okay, next 48, 72 hours should be go time here on that. But man, isn't it the story of our lives sometimes? Like, we wait like that? I, I, in, in, it can be anxiety-provoking. For me, um, I, I've, been, I've been having a lot of stress around this because it's pretty big. And two nights ago, I dreamt about it. And dreams are crazy, right? And so in my dream, there's construction at our mailbox. And because of that, they couldn't put the mail in the mailbox. So the, the construction worker actually taped it to the side of my car in the driveway. And it was this package, and I knew instinctively that was the, the notification on my grant proposal. And so I kind of ripped it open, and there was a package within the package. And so, like, I'm hyperventilating because I know the answer is right here in my hands. And so I start running back to our front door on the sidewalk. And I'm so excited because Kirsten's on the other side of the door, and I'm about to rip it open and find out. And then my dream ends, right? That's the story of your life, isn't it? Dreaming, and, you know, just when you... 
right? So I don't know if it's prophetic or not. What's going to happen there? We'll find out, like I said, next 72 hours. But it's a story of our lives. It's waiting. So much waiting, right? And, and not only do I think it is, it's tough to wait because we spend so much of our time doing it, it's also telling. What I mean by that is that there's something about, about waiting that really is, I think, the most formidable test of trust in our lives. We've been in this series for the summer uh, that's coming to an end as we come to the end of summertime itself. You're called Singing the Psalms, as we look at the Psalms all summer long. And today we come to a song that David, King David, sings. And he, he literally says in verse 3, I'm singing a new song. And it's the song of trust. And that's what I want us to, to think about this morning. And as we do so, I know that I'm preaching to the choir when I say this, because all of us this morning struggle with trust, don't we? We, we struggle to trust. It may be God this morning that you're thinking about when I say that. It could be you're in your marriage. It could be... Um, in, in your neighborhood with someone. It could be a coworker, It could be something even within yourself that you're having a hard time trusting. But all of us struggle. And one of the things that we will often hear in a situation like that is that someone will say to us, and they mean well, and they will say to us, you just need to trust God. And on the face of it, is that a true statement? Yes, it is. Is it a helpful statement sometimes? Not necessarily. Because it begs this question, great, I know that I'm, I'm supposed to trust God, but how do I do that? What does that actually mean in practice? That's where the sermon comes into play today, this morning, friends. I think David shows us exactly, not just, he doesn't say trust God, he says, let me show you how to trust. And there are three things, three steps we might say. Number one, remembering. Half this psalm is about remembering before he even gets to his troubles. And the second thing is asking that comes after the remembering. And finally, Waiting. No surprise there. Remembering, asking, and waiting. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Let's jump in with the first thing here. And that is remembering. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again together. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. As I said, before we even get to the troubles that David has here, he spends the first half of the psalm actually talking about remembrance. He's looking back. That's what verse, notice it's in the past tense there. He's looking at God's past goodness in his life in essence. And only then does he get to verse 3, the new song. And he says there in verse 3, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. I want to talk with you just for a couple minutes about the importance of memory. Like what is memory? We all have them, of course. But what actually is memory? Now, there's a number of ways that we could define that or talk about that, but let me just uh, say this to you now. I think memory is a way that we put context to our present lives. It's putting context to our present lives. What do I mean by that? What, what is the purpose of a memory? What does a memory serve? And, and whether it's a good memory or a bad memory, right? It can serve in the same way. It reminds us of where we've been, who we've been, and that has impact on our present moment today. Like, depending on how you've dealt with or chosen not to deal with trauma in the past, for instance, can have that, that memory can have impact on, on how, how you deal with a trigger in the present time, for instance. Or if it's a good thing, think about uh, things where you've, you've received an acceptance for a college, right? Or it's a new job opportunity and you receive the acceptance there. 
or it's a birthday uh, memory, something like that. There, you can have so many good and positive memories, and they help actually form you today. That's what a memory does. I, I think often we think of memory as just something from the past, but a memory actually forms you in the present based upon what's happened in the past, you see. And how valuable and important is that? Well, think about what happens when you lose your memory. When I was in my 20s, I had a friend of mine whose father developed early-onset Alzheimer's at the age of 58. And, and I watched my friend suffer as his father suffered. You know, like he didn't lose his father physically immediately, but he lost his father in memory. If you've ever been through any form of dementia or know someone who has, you know that. That it's incredibly devastating because they're physically present with you, but otherwise gone as it progresses. And perhaps if you've known someone who's struggled and wrestled with this, you've watched them, you've seen what happens. Often they will they'll experience great irritability, anger, but especially fear. Where does that fear come from? Why does fear rear itself in the way that it does? It's because when you can't remember who you are, you feel lost in the cosmos, don't you? You feel a feel sense of you know, without rudder. Uh, that, that you're drifting and you don't know even know who you are. We don't know the power of memory until we lose it, friends. And so what David is saying is, when you face trouble, the most important thing is to remember. And of course, it's to remember who God is, which leads us now to verses 7 and 8. Listen to, to look, how he remembers, basically, is what he does here. Then I said, Behold, I have come. And then scroll the book that is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. And then here it says, Your law is written, excuse me, your law is within my heart. Uh, In other words, the Torah, as we talked about a few weeks ago, which for them was their whole scriptures. We call it the Old Testament. But for David, it was everything up until the time of David, as it were, right? And so, not even the Psalms, really. And so, it's the story of God is what the Torah is. It's, it's, it's God's people learning his story. And so, what David says is that in the midst of all this, he immersed himself in the story of God. He immersed himself in that. He immersed himself in memory, story. Earlier in June, uh, my mother, for her birthday, my sister and I, we, we got her a subscription to a digital service called StoryWorth. I don't know if you've ever heard of this or not. I've never heard of it before. But StoryWorth basically is a series of questions and, and you give to someone. And a lot of them are kind of boiler, boilerplate questions, sort of like tell us about your childhood, things like that. But you can also insert your own questions for whoever you're giving the gift to. And I've done that as well. And every week we get a response from my mother on one of the questions that she's answered. And it all goes into a digital vault, basically. And it's great. I mean, it's a incre- I love this gift. You know, it was just someone was brilliant to come up with this concept. And, and so every week I get a, another story from my mother. And often the stories have nothing to do with me whatsoever. They predate me. And they're about her parents, about her family tree, about her childhood, about falling in love with my father, things like that. Oh my gosh, it's so cool because in some cases I'm, I'm, I, I come to these stories and I say, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember when my mom mentioned that or my father mentioned that. But often it's new details. It's new things. And I think that that's sort of what, what, what David is getting at regarding the Torah, regarding the scriptures. He's saying like, I return to them. And I'm reminded, but then I also have these new experiences. I have this fresh understanding. 
And if you've ever studied the Word, and I know most of us have, and it's one of the things that we hit here so, so frequently. It's one of the reasons why we say join a small group that, that Mike was just talking about. Because there you really you get into the Word with other men or women, and, and you, you immerse yourself, and, and you, you're reminded of the story of God. But you also see new things, fresh things. Right? Even as a pastor, as I study the Word every week in preparation for being with you on Sunday mornings, like it's, I love it because I, I see new things, I learn new things beautiful to immerse yourself and what is the story that we're immersing ourselves in god's story right it's the story of the gospel you know, it's the word that we use the gospel literally the word means proclamation good news and it's this idea that god isn't just there it's not enough to believe in god believe into a god who who engages with his world who looks at a broken world and he says i love you too much to leave you right where you're at and so he sent his son he sent his son to engage us and, and to live the life that we were intended to live, and then he dies the death that, that we should have died. But because of God's grace and mercy, the Father's mercy and grace, that Jesus writes the wrongs of our heart, reconciles us back to him, and the promise is that one day the fullness of the gospel, think about that, the gospel isn't something privately for you. The gospel is a cosmos activity. It is the idea that it is the truth that God one day will fully reconcile all of creation and the heavens and the earth will be one, Revelation says. That's the story that we remember. And David, to the extent that he was living into that story at this point in history, David is, is saying that's the story. The thing juxtaposed against what is the story that we're told to live by between the Sundays? What's the story when you, when you as soon as you leave here and you turn on your Twitter feed, social media, Water cooler conversations, even though we don't have many of those anymore because we're not in the offices, right? But wherever you're at, wherever you're working at, in your neighborhoods, what, what, is, the, what is the narrative in the contested space that we live in? And the answer is that secularism is this idea that we live in a closed universe, which means what? It means a lot of things. But one of the things it mentions is that when you're in trouble, you're on your own. And David says, no. No, there, there is a God of a gospel who is engaged all of reality. And so when I'm in the miry pit, when I'm in the pit of destruction, there is a God who cares for me. This is the memory that David starts with before he even asks anything of the Lord. But here's the last thing I want to show you about memory. And so verses 9 and 10, look with me there again. Look at what he says here. This is fascinating. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying memory isn't complete until we share it with other people. I mean, these aren't the only two verses. He comes back to it at the very end. He keeps saying over and over again how important it is to celebrate in our memories. Earlier this week, and you heard Annie share this, that she was in, we're looking at Psalm 40 together as staff, and she came to the story that you just heard. And in a, a day or two later, she contacted me. She says, I, I want to share this story. And it was these verses right here. I've got to share the story. Now, it was her story. But what did you hear as you heard her story? 
chances are, for some of you at least, for some of you, you heard something of your story, didn't you? You had a memory that was triggered, as Annie shared her story. You had a remembrance of where God had done something for you. It was a loss of a loved one. It was a tragedy. It was a trauma. Or it was something. Or maybe, or maybe, as Annie was sharing, you said, my gosh, what's being triggered is I haven't worked through this yet. God, would you have the same mercy upon me so that I could sing the way that Annie sung? That's why we tell the stories, friends. That's why we testify. That's what the heart of evangelism is about, is to share the story not knowing exactly who is it that needs to hear that story in God's providence and His sovereignty, what we talked about last week. God uses our story to bring remembrance to the stories of other people. And, and so that's the beauty here of what David is saying, is I tell my story for the nations, that the nations might know who you are, O Lord. And it's only then that he turns to the second thing, and that is the asking self. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me again. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Now, David has just gone through the first ten verses of celebration. God, thank you so much. You have been amazing. I'm celebrating you so much so as king. I'm celebrating you amongst my people. But in verse 11, what happens? That's the pivot point. I'm back in the pit. Right? Like, forget about the celebration for a second. I'm back in the pit. That's actually where I'm at right now, he says. Evils have encompassed me. And what did he say there in, in verse 12 towards the very end here? I mean, is this that my troubles are more than the hairs of my head. This is a man who, who is, is surrounded, encompassed. He's drowning, as it were, in the mud, right? He's at a really bad place. And we're not told the details of why King David is in such a dark place. But this is where he is. And I want you to see that the very first thing that we have to do as we come to our troubles, excuse me, the second thing, after we remember, is that we have to be realist, Right? I, I don't like the idea of either optimism or pessimism. I'm not a fan of either, right? Uh, optimism is I've got to go from one mountaintop to another. I, I don't want, no, don't tell me about the valleys. And what is a pessimist? A pessimist, all they see is the valley, right? All they see is the miry pit. But the idea that there are, there are mountaintops, no, for whatever reason, all I can see is the valley here. Brendan Manning was a Catholic writer uh, wrote a book called Abba's Child, one of my favorites. He said this, It's one thing to feel loved by God when our life is together and all our support systems are in place. Then self-acceptance is relatively easy. When we even claim that we are coming to like ourselves, when we are strong on top in control, and as the Celts say, in fine form, a sense of security crystallizes. But what happens when life falls through the cracks? What happens when we sin and fail, when our dreams shatter? When our vestments crash, when we are regarded with suspicion, what happens when we come face to face with the human condition? Manning's pointing to exactly what David does here, and that is that the, the answer is not optimism. The answer is not pessimism. It's realism. It's what I call Christian realism. In saying, we have a great and mighty God, but we live in a broken world. And we live between the worlds, as it were. 
And, and, so, and so David points us here, as Manning said there, that, that we, have to, we have to realize that we are in the pit, right? And, you know, it's like in Lord of the Rings, right? I mentioned that I love Lord of the Rings, the movies and books as well. I loved them as kids, loved them as adults. And it seemed like the movie really brings us out because it's so fast relative to reading a really long book. But as soon as there's a celebration, you're immediately thrown into the pit, right? In Mordor or someplace with the orcs, something going on, right? And as soon as the orcs are defeated, you're like, yeah, you know, it's time for a beer in Rivendell. And then suddenly after that, you're thrown right back in with Sauron and Mordor. I mean, it's just up and down, up and down, up and down. And David says, I get that. That's, that's reality. That's where I live. That's where you and I live. And so the first part that gets us to the asking there is to be realist. So we've got to be real with God. We like to say that. Well, you have to be realist with reality as well in order to get to that point of reality with God. And so it leads to verse 13. And we don't have to look back at it right now, but I love how it begins. This is really the inflection point. This is where it really it begins in earnest, his prayer. He says, be pleased, Lord, to deliver me. In, in verses 13 to 17 is this earnest, fervent prayer before God. Be pleased, Lord, to deliver me. Here's the key. At that point, after everything that he's been saying, the first 12 verses, David is ready to trust. David is saying, I'm throwing in my lot with you. I'm in a place of powerlessness. I'm in a place of helplessness. Lord, you must deliver me. And the juxtaposition here is in verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray, after a lie. David is saying there are really only two choices in life. Really only two choices. Whenever we face any predicament, any trouble, any form of anxiety, whatever it is that we face, there's only two real choices. Either we will trust in the Lord. In light of what, everything that I've said already, that's what we're saying. Or we will develop a functional trust, I like to call it, in something or someone. Nature abhors the vacuum. Something will replace God. If God is not the the, the, the place, the foundation of your trust, something else will fill its place. And, and when we put pressure on the created order to come through in a godlike way, look out. There's a story after David about another king named Asa. And Asa was, was, uh, was dealing with Assyria, this massive, mighty power at the time, the biggest empire in the Middle East at the time. And it was pressuring Judah. And as king of Judah, there in Jerusalem, he had a history of distrust with God. And at one point, he built an alliance with, I think it was Egypt, he built an alliance with another foreign power. And the prophet says, don't do it, Asa. Don't do it. God is enough for you. Just trust him right now. Remember how he delivered your forefathers. Asa, don't put your trust in this functional alliance. But he does. And leads to disaster. And then towards the end of his life, he's dealing with a physical ailment within his body. It was probably gout. But listen to what it says in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 12 about Asa. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet, and his disease became severe. Yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but sought help from physicians. The problem wasn't the doctors. The problem was turning the doctor into a god. And my gosh, like, we can so easily do that in our lives. I mean, some of you are medical professionals, right? How many of you want to have God-like powers? I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, the pressure, think about that for a second. I know some of you are thinking, well, God-like powers actually could be kind of nice. But when, when it's up to you, 
to heal. And if you don't come through and you, it, you know, there's no one else to turn to but you, it's a lot of pressure, man. It's a lot of pressure in any, any type of uh, career, you might say. But I think it's more practical than that because I was thinking about parenting, for instance. By the way, I am convinced that God gives you parenthood to forcibly humble you. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, if you're a parent, you're going, amen to that, yeah? I mean, what else can take someone who's incredibly to the left or to the right politically, right? Or incredibly religious or irreligious, and then you get with them, and you disagree about everything, but as soon as you bring a parent, you're like, yeah, I know. Yeah, you know, I, I get you on that one. I mean, there's something about parenting that just does that. Every parent in here knows exactly what I'm talking about. And yet, the reality is, your pastor, so often... When his kids are going through hardship, my first thought isn't to turn to God. My first thought is, is what can I do to, to fix this? What can I do right, to get my child to be contained again? To, to, to be emotionally contained again? Like, we know drama in our household, right? And so, you know, what, what do I need to do in this situation? Like, like... And, you know, especially in the last couple of years, I've been really working, Kirsten knows this, I've been really working on my anger and, and not powering up and, and learning not to do that because that was a form of control. It was a form of saying, like, I can, I can deal with this. I can fix this. But God has been so good to me in the last, I'd say, really 18 to 24 months just to really teach me, just go to prayer. You are powerless, God. You are, you are helpless, but you're not hopeless. And I want you just to, to turn to me. Just, just cry out on behalf of, of your daughter and what she's going through right now. Oh my gosh. Even in what I was telling you earlier about, uh, about the grant proposal, I just yesterday morning I was in my office. I'm not kidding. Just yesterday morning I was in my office and I was going through prayer before I was working on the sermon and I started thinking about the grant proposal. Right? It's a lot of money. Like it would cover the whole sabbatical. And some stuff for the church. And I'm so excited, you know, to hope. But I was like, well, what if I don't get it? And it's really competitive. And, and, and so I just started ratcheting up like that with anxiety. And I started spiraling. And here I am working on this sermon. And, and so I started remembering. I was like, okay, God. Okay, God. You are you're today who you were before I even knew about the grant. Right? You cared for me. Your, your love and care for me has nothing to do whether I get a yay or nay on this grant proposal. And I'm telling you, I felt like a weight was lifted from me in prayer. Like I was just able to be present. And, and, um, and yeah, in the last 24 hours, I felt some peace around it that I haven't had in the last several days prior to that. But there's just something about that where we're at a place of powerlessness and helplessness. We're saying, I can't rely on my skill set in my office anymore. I've been crushing in the marketplace, but I, I can't do that. Right? Or, or uh, I can't rely upon my athleticism anymore as I get older. I can't. Whatever it is, all of us in here, we have a functional trust. And, we, and what, what the scriptures are saying is the only way to deal with that is to realize that you, are, you have to be more than your circumstances because your circumstances will change. Your investments will change. Just when you think you have enough for retirement, right, the market goes down. Right? Or, or you, the job that you thought would take you to retirement or whatever it might be that you're thinking about, even at an earlier age, this is the career that I've wanted to, and it doesn't work out the way that you wanted it to. Functional trust. David says, you have to see your helplessness. Even if you're killing in the marketplace, 
even if you are God's gift to the world in parenting, even if, fill in the blank, whatever it might be, you are also helpless. You just don't know it. And so David says, helplessness allows us to approach God with prayer. The author, James Finley, another Catholic priest, listen to what he says in a work about Thomas Merton, who was another priest. He says, we pray not to recharge our batteries, but rather to be transformed by God so that the myths and fictions of our life might fall like broken shackles from our wrists. Let me ask you this. What are the myths and the fictions that you're believing into right now? Maybe it is about God. God, I, I don't know that you really care for me. I don't know that you really want to help me. Maybe it has nothing to do with God per se. Maybe it's, you know, it's in your marriage. It's in your singleness. It's in something in your life. There's a myth. There's a fiction that were you to bring it to the Lord in prayer, were you to immerse yourself in the Scriptures, you might see just like that. You would see it as a myth. You might see it as a fiction and say, I don't want to be enslaved and entrapped anymore to that belief system or to that action, to the way of life. What are the myths? What are the fictions? Part of what prayer is, friends, is to say, remind me, O oh God, of who you are, and therefore who I am. You see, that's how that works. The more that you spend time remembering who God is, the more you actually come to know yourself. John Calvin, famously in the Institutes, had been, it's like a thousand pages. Everyone who says they've read it actually just skimmed it, by the way. But uh, including in seminary for me, too. But the very opening paragraph of the 1,000-page book says, in knowing God, we come to know ourselves, and knowing ourselves, we come to know God. And, man, the more that we just immerse ourselves in his story, you want to know, man, why do I seem full of anxiety and skewed one left and right and so forth between the Sundays? It's because we forget the story of God. Simple as that. But what you see David do here is he says, God, you gave me a new song. I remember when you gave me fresh experience. But God, just like the manna in the desert for my people of Israel, it just lasted for the day. I need fresh bread. I need new experience. I need new song. You see, that's what David's saying in the second half. He says, you gave me a new song. I know you're capable of it. I've seen you do it. But I need another new song. I need a song for today. See, the gospel isn't something that saves you one day in the past. Now it's up to you to live your life, right? It's up to you to come through, right? The gospel is how you live your life every day. The gospel is fresh bread. The gospel is experience, new experience. And so part of what, our, what God calls us to in our prayer lives is, God, give me fresh experience. I feel like my bread is stale. Give me the fresh presence of your existence. And sometimes God does seem that it's like dark night of the soul. God, where are you? Yes, he gives us those experiences. But he also gives us fresh experience in the midst of of the darkness amidst the miry bog, David tells us that here. And so that leads to the last thing here. Because what do we do when we pray and things don't change right away? That's the reality of our lives, isn't it? Some of you have been dealing with stuff that's been lasting for months, maybe years in your life, and you're saying, I don't feel like I'm making headway. How do I make sense of that? The last thing here is waiting. Because just because you remember the gospel story, and you know it for your life, fresh experience. And just because you go to him and he asks him doesn't mean that that day, in that way, you'll be delivered. 
Verse 1 is interesting. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord. I waited. Right? I waited. Right? Patiently. I'm waiting. Right? In verse 17, look with me again in verse 17. As for me, I am poor and needy. How about that? The king. I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes me takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. He begins in waiting and he ends saying, God, I've been waiting. How much longer do I have to wait? How long, O oh Lord? How long must I sing this song? Love you too's version. <laughs> how long, O oh Lord, must I sing this song? Here's where I want to end. I want to, I want you to see a couple of things that waiting does for you, okay? I know it's hard. I'm not going to, just because I'm the preacher doesn't mean I don't understand personally how hard it is to wait, especially when there's disease in your body, in your relationships, in your career, whatever it might be. I understand how hard it is, and God understands. But let me tell you why I think God allows us to wait. There's a few things. Number one, it's where he shapes our character more than anywhere else. Let me say that again. It is in the waiting where God shapes us more than anything else. A pastor friend of mine says that most of the theology of the Bible is the theology of waiting. I think it's true. Genesis to Revelation, so much waiting among the saints. So much waiting. But let me, let me give you a little illustration of what happens and why, why waiting is so important. Imagine that you go to a doctor's office, since I used that earlier. We'll go back there. Imagine you go to the doctor's office and you, you observe two different people, two very different types of people waiting there. It's packed, by the way, in this waiting room. And the doctor clearly is overwhelmed. And, and there's one person, they're, they're probably they're pretty well-dressed, actually. And, and they're, they're, they probably have their smartphone and they're trying to, to do some business while they're waiting and they're getting more irritable. They're tapping, perhaps, right? And, and, and you can see that look on their face of irritability and impatience. And perhaps after a while, there's a couple choice words that they share with the staff, right? What's going on in their heart, you might say? Well, clearly impatience. I don't need to be waiting. But then you look at the other person sitting right next to them. And perhaps they're shabbily dressed, right? And, and you can take some guesses, Right? The first person, they probably have amazing health care. The second person, let's say you know something about them, you find out they don't have any health care at all. They're indigent. And they're sitting in that waiting room, waiting just like the other person who's pretty well off, and they're waiting for the same doctor. What is the attitude of their heart? You can guess. I can't believe that even without health care, there's going to be someone who's going to see me. And I don't know how long I'm going to have to wait but I can't believe that they're going to see me. You see the difference there? Let me say something very important here, really important, because I'm preaching this to myself as much as to you, okay? Impatience is always the evidence of entitlement. Impatience is always the evidence of entitlement. When we are impatient, what we are saying is, I shouldn't have to deal with. This is not for me. Versus humility. When humility rushes in, entitlement leaves. Waiting brings out the grace of God. When you see that you don't have the health care, that you don't have the rights to determine when you see the doctor, you say, thanks be to God that I even have a shot here. You see the difference there, friends? And so what waiting does, when God permits you to wait weeks, months, sometimes even years, as hard as it is, 
He's shaping your character into his good grace, his gospel. That's the first thing. But the second thing I want you to see here is that in that waiting, in that character development, he wants you to cry out with earnestness. You know, the word there, I waited patiently for the Lord. It's really not the best rendering in the English. It's intensity. I waited with intensity. I waited intensely, God. It's like Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? This is not someone who's saying, Oh Lord, Lord, if it be your will. This is someone who's saying, No, God, now. No, God, now. Instead of Martin Luther, that that, uh, someone came along and, and saw him pacing the floor in his room through the window, and, and, and they thought he was in this big-time argument. As they got closer, they realized, no, there's no one else in the room. He was praying. He, was, he had this sort of fervent prayer life where he was, because he actually believed that God was a person, that he was in a relationship. And when he was out of sorts in that relationship, it was a bit passionate, we might say. Right? It was fervent. It was earnest. I waited earnestly. I waited patiently. For the Lord, but with intensity. Some of you really need to hear that right now. Some of you really need to just, you know, you need to just let yourself go right now. Right? You know, just what Annie said. I said, God can handle my anger. Right? Man, God can handle your anger. He can handle your tears. He can handle the frozenness of your heart. He can handle all of it. But what would it look like for you to say, God, now? Because if you don't come through for me, this is not going to happen. I'm not waiting on anyone else. I'm not waiting in my flesh. I'm not waiting in my strength. I'm not putting functional trust in someone else. I'm putting my trust in you, so you've got to come through for me. God loves it when we pray that way, friends. He loves it when we put the pressure on Him. Is that all right? Again, the waiting, I no guarantee when He comes through, right? We're in the doctor's office, Dr. Ross. But He loves it when we say, you better come through. Pray with boldness. Bold humility is all I like to say. Here's the last thing. What is the evidence that we're waiting well? Obedience. Go back with me to verses 7 and 8 one last time. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is with, within my heart. David is saying, I want your word to be how I live my life. Even in the waiting, no matter how long it is I'm in the miry pit, no matter how long you allow me to stand here, I'm waiting on you. That's obedience. But David was imperfect, as we know. In fact, in verse 12, he mentions the iniquities. What was that he talked about? Maybe, maybe some of what he was dealing with had to do with the adultery, had to do with the murder that he was also, also guilty of. We don't know exactly. But we do know is that the king of Israel, who was God's representation on earth, of righteousness was imperfect, was helpless, was powerless. And what I find so fascinating about those words here, it's a quote. And if you think about it, if David is saying this, it reads kind of funny. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. We know something that David didn't know. And that was this was a prophecy that was pointing forward to the perfect one who would wait perfectly. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews was written, by the way, 
as the name might suggest, about Judaism, about the people who are not Jewish, to understand what is Judaism and how does it relate to my life. And it says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 and 7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. Sounds like verse 6, didn't it? In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, listen, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. It's a direct quotation from Psalm 6. The writer of Hebrews says this has been fulfilled in our midst. Jesus Christ, he perfectly waited. God the Father waited, and he brought Jesus, Jesus into the world, took on flesh, and he waited three and a half years. And he went to the cross where he waited, and he spread out his arms, and he died the death that that we were intended to die so that we would be fully and forever connected back to the Father. When you have to wait, no matter what it is in your life right now, and I know, and I know because I'm, I'm, I'm privy to your prayers, I'm privy to your stories when you come into my office or you come into Mike's office, what's going on? I know how heavy life can be. I know this life is tough. It's, it's a tough world that we live in. But you can wait. And you can wait on His timing in your life. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. He is your memory. He is your reminder that, that if He redeemed you from sin and death itself, how will He not take you through the valley of the shadow of death into the, where you are in the pit of destruction? How will He not rescue you in His time from that place? And so may He give you hope within your heart that you have hopefulness in the place of helplessness. And may He give you bold humility to cry out to Him as you need to in your life right now. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. Thank You for the promises that have come true and are coming true. This is where we live between the now and the not yet. As we live between the Sundays, Lord, You call us to remember and to ask of You with boldness and with earnestness and with fervency for that which we face in light of Your past faithfulness. And so give us boldness. Give us a bold humility, not an entitlement, not that sort of boldness, not that cockiness, but give us the the boldness that can only come from salvation, that can only come from helplessness, that can only come from redemption. Give us that in our souls and our hearts this week as we pray for our marriages and our singleness, as we pray for our families, as we pray for our work and for our neighborhood, for our city, for our nation, for our world. Lord, give us that hope hope of the gospel itself. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.